welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed. And I am Angela Brown, the Manager of B2B Brand Strategy. Well, this is our third quarterly update on things that we've learned. Can you believe it's already the third one? No. (laughs) (laughs) I also can't believe it's October, and I can't believe that we are hurtling toward the end of 2023. But... Here we are. Yeah, well, it's your favorite month here, so. It is. For for those of you who know me well, you know that spooky season is my favorite season, and Halloween is the month in which my favorite, or October's the month, Halloween's not a month, October's (laughs) the month where my, my favorite, favorite, favorite holiday happens to live, and that is Halloween, if you couldn't tell already. So I have updated my Slack photo, my Facebook profile picture. I always do something scary and scary movie related. I'm doing my annual rewatch of The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix and all of my decorations are up. I'm digging right in. So I'm ready. Well, speaking of digging right in, we've got a lot. We're going to focus pretty heavily on AI this this month because things have been on top of our minds. So in non-AI learnings, let's get into your spooky thoughts. (laughs) In non-spooky, non-AI, because poor Julie Falstick, who's my first person that I'm I'm covering, is going to be like, wait a minute, what? What's spooky about that conversation? It was spooky good. It was, there you go. Scary good. (laughs) Scary good. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it already, I did a podcast episode with Julie Falstick from Stony Creek Strategy, who I think is brilliant. She is a former head of school and also had a lot of other senior roles in the independent school space. And I, I can't say enough good things about her. I think she's brilliant and has a lot of really smart things to say about leadership and different administrative functions in independent schools. So the topic for that episode was rethinking admission strategy. It was inspired by a blog post that she did on her blog, which like and subscribe, it's over on Substack. And there's a lot of stuff that we talked about, about things that independent school leaders need to be thinking about. But I want to focus for this conversation on two big things. So one was Something that I've actually been seeing in in different ways, but I think there this can manifest in ways that are a little bit more subtle, and that's unintentional barriers that schools are creating for prospective families. And so two things that we we talked about on the podcast episode that really stood out to me were, one, the ways that independent schools can signal elitism. And that is something that, you know, I think for families that are new to independent schools, they might be carrying some stereotypes or preconceived notions about what it's like to be part of an independent school community. Mm-hmm. And there are ways that schools can reinforce some of those things with your visuals, with your language, with your traditions. And so particularly since independent schools have put so much work into equity and inclusion and formalizing offices around that work, hiring directors to lead that work that often sit on senior leadership, I think it's really important not just to think about your policies, your hiring practices, your curriculum but also the way that you are demonstrating your commitment to equity and inclusion visually with messaging. For example, I actually shared this with our director of Jaman Jen when I was scrolling through Instagram, a school that I follow that will remain nameless. I follow many, many schools <laughs> had a photo of a student who um, was in their lower school, I believe, and had won a golf tournament. And so you see this child, this little boy, in a very polished looking golf outfit with his polo and his golf club and, and all of that. And that's not to say that you shouldn't celebrate golfers, right, in your community. But if you're a prospective parent and you're scrolling through and Maybe you're worried about whether or not your family is going to fit in a community, or maybe you need financial aid and you're concerned about that. And you see this photo from an independent school 
of a student who won a golf tournament at a young age, mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that can unintentionally signal that sort of traditional elitism that is often associated with these institutions. And again, it's not to say that you can't celebrate those aspects of your community. And that's, you know, the, the examples that we used sticking with the athletics themes in the episode were lacrosse and rowing, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a rowing team, that is okay. My local public secondary school has a crew team, right? It's an East Coast thing and not so much an elitism thing. But the thing to be mindful of is to make sure that you are also promoting your commitment to community service or that you're also talking about the equity work that you're doing. Just think about, particularly if you're in a marketing office, what types of traditions, imagery, language are you using that can unintentionally send a message to a prospective family that may not necessarily be real? Or if that is really who you are, if you are one of those like really traditional super elite institutions, that's okay too. But just know that you can either lean into that or lean away from it, but you have to, you have to do that in a way that's really authentic. And then the other thing that we talked about was distancing communications practices. And this is actually something that Julie pointed out to me that I hadn't thought about, but even something as simple as having a generic email on your admissions page, instead Mm -hmm. of allowing people to submit an inquiry form or connect with an individual person, that is a distancing tactic. I don't think people realize that, but you are subtly sending the message that you want to keep families at arm's length. And my favorite quote from her, or one of many actually, but on this particular topic is that she said, in the admissions process, admissions officers are symbols of power and authority. And I don't think that people typically see it that way. And so when you're using that filter to think about how prospective families are seeing admissions officers, even though internally you probably see yourselves as you know the welcome committee for prospective yeah. families, yeah. the flip side of that is that you're a gatekeeper. And so you want to be really careful and really intentional about you know how you are helping families to feel comfortable from the earliest stages of the process. Yeah. Do you prioritize people or do you prioritize the process itself? Absolutely. Right? Yes. Yeah. And it, it's a balance. It's a balance for sure. And I think the other thing that's harder to solve because it's been a topic of conversation for ever and ever and ever. And, you know, it's, it's certainly a topic of conversation in higher ed as well is tuition. You know, if you're rethinking admission strategy, I don't think it's possible to do that without revisiting tuition, how you approach it, what type of financial aid you make available to prospective families, how much financial aid you make available. And so Julie actually shared in the episode that she thinks independent school tuition has already jumped the shark. Because one of the questions I asked is, at what point are we going to all look at each other and say, we need to do this differently. It's been a topic of conversation for a long time, but no one has actually solved for it. Some schools have done tuition resets and and seen some success with that, but obviously there are some risks involved there. In this climate where tuition has reached shocking annual rates in some instances, you know, mid to high five figures. And in our parent survey, which is actually going live the week after this recording, we're starting to see some signals that there's an increase in price sensitivity where more parents are factoring tuition costs into the decision-making process. More families are removing schools from consideration entirely if financial aid is not available or enough financial aid Mm -hmm. is not available and more families are making their final choices based on affordability. We have that happening on the parent side, but there's no sign of any slowing or stopping, you know, when it comes to tuition. And we know that tuition is the biggest source of revenue for independent schools. That's not a secret. That's very well known. Mm-hmm. But 
We also need to really think about, aside from having a really robust endowment and your annual fund, which certainly helps a little bit, what are the other ways that you can skin that cat and still continue to give raises to your teachers and provide strong benefits and maintain your facilities? It is a really difficult question, but we know that we are running out of people who are going to be able to afford these consistently escalating prices with their annual increases of 3 to 5% that you can basically count on unless something crazy happens. And again, to go back to the equity issue, for these institutions that are saying that they're committed to equity and inclusion, socioeconomic diversity is part of that as well. But we are making independent school education accessible to only the wealthiest families. And I don't think that's what we want. You know, I don't I don't think that's the goal, but that's what's happening. And so it it almost came full circle where, you know, we talk about elitism earlier in the conversation and equity and access and tuition is such a big part of that. It's such a big part of that. And if you're going to continue to offer an experience that is preparing your students for the world that they're actually going to go out into after they after they graduate because they're going to go to college and they're not going to be surrounded by you know, a homogenous group of people, right? They're mm-hmm. going to be around people who are coming from a range of backgrounds, some people who are getting significant financial aid or relying on student loans to make it work. It's not all going to be the wealthiest of the wealthy, even at elite higher ed institutions. So part of that is making sure that you're fostering an environment that's representative of the real world. It's always going to be the case, I I think, until we can find a different funding model, until it's going to be out of price for some people. I mean, it's not going to, I don't know any, any independent school that's going to have the type of endowment that can say, well, we're going to open our doors to everybody. Yeah. It would be nice if that was the case, but it's the same thing we're starting, we've seen for several years now at higher ed, and we're seeing this now, like a lot of things trickle down with that price sensitivity, with questioning the ROI, with, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out and how the the survey results turn out. There were a couple of things you mentioned in there that tied directly into what I was going to talk about. So I, I wanted to jump in with those. Talking about your barriers. You know, yes. Barriers. That was something that we saw from the annual senior enrollment survey. Uh, this was the eighth year we've done that. And most students this year said they did not submit uh, applications or abandon an application to a college that they wanted to attend because of problems with the application itself. Mm. There's that barrier. There's issues. The top ones they cited were the application fee itself whether yeah. that's $250, $500, just to find out whether or not they, they earn the honor of paying tuition. Mm. That could be a, a definite barrier, especially if this is a kid applying to 5, 10, 15 colleges. If there's a few hundred dollars a pop to find out if you're going to be accepted, yeah, that really adds up. Application length, asking just way too many questions. It's the yeah. same thing we've seen with inquiry forms that we're asking all these things, are we using them? Right. And I think on the at the application stage, my question is, if you look at all those questions that are being asked, are they being used to make an admissions decision or are they being used later? If they're being used later, let's ask them later. Right. If they're being used for the decision. Okay, great. Perfect place to have them. I don't know that you need 60 questions to determine whether or not someone's <laughs> admitted. Right. There's just a lot in an application that I think is being asked at the wrong time. Having too many additional requirements, you know, when a couple essays, multiple recommendations, your transcript, test scores, maybe you want a, pro- a portfolio for some programs. It's a lot when these students have all these other things going on, all these stressors to right. then ask, hey, can you also then send us, you know, your magnum opus as well? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then another one that we especially saw true for first gen students they felt the application was too confusing. They didn't really clearly know what was being asked, what they needed to submit, how to answer a question. You'll see lingo and you'll see acronyms on application and other forms that don't always make sense. What's your planned program of emphasis? Well, I I know what that means, but I've also been around higher ed for 13 years, (laughs) plus as a student. If I'm a 17-year-old whose parents both dropped out of high school, 
and most of my family doesn't have this experience, how in the world am I alone supposed to know what that means? Right. Is that asking right. major? Is that asking what I want to do after college? Is that what is a major? I, I, I forget if I've told this story already. I know I have other places, but I was five years in and had a family come up to me after a presentation. They didn't want to ask during the presentation because they felt embarrassed, but they asked, what's the, what is a bachelor's degree? Like they didn't oh, know wow. what that meant versus associates. What's bachelor of science? What's bachelor of arts? Wow. And that never gets addressed anywhere. Yeah. They're just, there's assumptions everywhere in yeah. the process yep. that people just know the language. They know what's going on. That's yeah. really interesting. Like on the website, if I say, well, we have a bachelor of science in accounting. What does that mean? If I'm looking at this other one that says they have a bachelor of arts or another one that just says bachelor's right. or associates or right. how am I supposed to figure out what all this means? Which one do I want to achieve my goal? And then I'm embarrassed to raise my hand and ask and say, yeah. I have no clue what this means. And so we got to sit down, we walked through the buildings and we, we did all that. But it made me realize if this family was so embarrassed, they didn't ask until everyone else had left. How many other people over the years have never asked and went home not knowing? Right. Uh, and, and when you think about if you feel like you don't know something and everyone else does, are you going to continue with that process? Or are you going to say, I don't, I don't belong here. I don't right. understand this. That confusion part, we might look at it. We might have other people in the office test it and say, does this make sense? Does this work? And it might make sense to all of us. Well, yeah, of course. We've been through it. We see it every day. Right. It's the process. That's why, like when I'm writing survey questions, when you're writing survey questions, we have people who are not associated with it, read it to make sure that it Absolutely. makes sense. Yeah. As a term that makes sense to us and, and we think makes sense to other people doing the job, if it makes no sense at all to someone else, can we make it more clear? Yeah. 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 And that was interesting. You mentioned tuition resets as well. It's mm -hmm. interesting that hitting, there was an article in Inside Higher Ed recently about tuition resets coming back again. Uh, we first heard about them several years ago and I'm, the big one I, that I can always remember is the first big example was Utica doing their big tuition reset. And now they're coming back again because, as we've been saying for several years now, when we do our surveys, students are looking at that total cost, that total yep. price, not cost, the total price, and determining whether or not they will inquire and determine whether or not they will apply. It doesn't matter how much financial aid you give if you turn them off before they can ever get their foot in the door. Yep. But the problem with tuition resets is they're not effective if they don't stick. If you mm -hmm. reset your tuition, then just raise it right again. It wasn't really a reset, was it? Right. So like Utica, for example, went from in 2015, and this is all based on what was on their website, so I'm sure there, there's subtle differences there, but 2015, it was just over 38000 a year. Mm -hmm. They lowered it then to twenty six seven, so a $12,000 drop. Awesome. Now, also looking at what they're reporting to iPads, they reduce the amount of aid though as well so students the net cost of students actually went up between 15 and 16 so while the tuition yeah. reset absolutely helped them get more students yeah. it also then helped them because they got more tuition dollars from those who came so that worked out really well for them but then they kept increasing the price again and for the 2023 year they're advertising 41,000 as their total price so more expensive than they were back in 15 when they did the reset so it wow. doesn't feel like a lot of a reset to me. No. <laughs> if it came right back up real fast. Wow. And it actually was increasing at a higher rate than before, 50% higher rate of tuition increase. But it absolutely helped them as well. It got them more apps. It got them more enrollments in the, in the short term at least. But I wonder if we'll see the same thing on the, on the independent school side, that they do these resets and then just yeah. increase it right back up again. Yeah. And I, I also, one thing that I, I do think higher ed institutions do better than independent schools in general, because it's, it's a big conversation around, you know, what does the, what does your tuition or affordability or whatever you choose to call mm -hmm. it page on your website look like, right? This is a, this is something that gets covered a lot. And you know, we know that that's one of the first places that prospective families go mm -hmm. because if they don't think they can afford it, 
they're not going to keep going, right? I mean, they the first thing is how much is this, right? And so it's consistently a top page on school websites. It's also one that has a tendency to have the highest bounce or exit rates <laughs> um, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Can I afford and this? Nope. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's a lot of conversation around what do you, what kind of information do you include? Where does the actual tuition cost go on the page hierarchically? And one thing that I think that higher ed institutions do do well is that they're clearer about what the actual price is. Mm-hmm. And with independent schools, there's a tendency to say, you know, these are the numbers, depending on how many divisions or age groups you serve or whether you're boarding or day um, or both. And here's the percentage of families who tend to get financial aid awards each year. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you're a prospective family, that doesn't tell you whether or not you would qualify for financial aid, mm-hmm. whether or not that's something you should even hope for. Now, some schools go even further, which I love, and say, this is the typical award. Great. That that helps me even more if as I'm doing my research and trying to develop that shortlist – But I think somewhere in the process, because another trend that we've been seeing in the in the on the independent school side in K-12 for some time is the income levels of the people who are asking for financial aid are Mm. going up and up and up and up. And so people who on paper are considered to be relatively high earners are still asking for financial aid because they have other obligations. And you know, they might actually really, you know, there there are very few people who don't flinch at a $50,000 tuition bill, yeah. especially if you have more than one child. And a lot of people do, right? And so even having somewhere in the process clarity around what is it that I can really expect? So what we see happen a lot of the time doesn't happen, which is you've applied to all these schools, you get your acceptance and your financial aid letter, and you're disappointed, you know, <laughs> and, and you have to, you, maybe you have, you and your child have your heart set on a school and you, you get all the way through the process and you're not given enough. And it's yeah. it's a bummer for everybody because that expectation wasn't realistically set. And so somewhere along the way, having some clarity around what a family can reasonably expect to pay to attend mm-hmm. is something that I think is going to become more and more important too. Do you ever see net price calculators at independence? No. Okay. No. It'll be interesting to see how quick it how well how long it takes for them to actually adopt those. Yeah. They can be used as great tools because it can give you that realistic view within a range, as long as they're putting in the correct information uh, <laughs> of what what they might pay. Mm-hmm. It'd be much more simple to implement, I would assume, at most independent schools. But they can also be used as an inquiry form. They fill it yeah. out. If they like what they see, they can inquire. You can incentivize it. You can have campaigns built around it. Yeah. There's a lot you can do with it. So it'll be interesting to see who's going to be the first one to jump on that. Yeah, I'm actually surprised it hasn't started to happen. And I don't know if it's because of some of the complexity in, you know, how financial aid is awarded and and, and mm-hmm. calculated. But, but even if there's a way to generalize it to the extent where a family can at least get a baseline level, you know, yeah. of, of what they can expect. So it's not happening at the end, you know, it's not of the process. I think that would be better for everybody. That yeah. would be better for everybody. Yep. Approach it up front so that students and families can opt in early or opt out early. So you're not spending all your time on people who in the end say, this is 5000 more than we can afford. Exactly. Exactly. It's not good for you, not good for them. Right. Well, did you have one other take here uh, before we kind of jump back over to the higher ed side of things? Yes. And I, I think we can combine our AI conversation. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> cover all that. Be, 
That's going to be a big one. So I'm going to stick with with my marketing thread for a second because my my AI piece connects more with the enrollment side. But I mm-hmm. I think that you know the admission strategy piece was was a hybrid. Um, and actually, I think this is too really this this was an article that I read on the American Marketing Association website slash blog. And it was written by Carrie Phillips, who is the chief communications and marketing officer at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. It's a mouthful. (laughs) And it was about baseline strategies for marketing to generation alpha. And I find conversations, people who follow me or connected with me on LinkedIn will not be surprised to hear this, but I always find conversations around generational marketing to be really interesting because For one, there is not a universally understood set of buckets, understood or agreed upon set of buckets for generations. It's not Mm -hmm. a perfect science. Different organizations, Pew, Gallup, et cetera, define generations slightly differently with slight variations in birth years. But Starting with millennials, honestly, I feel like that was the first time in my marketing career that I started hearing a lot of noise around marketing around generations. Because I also think that, you know, as a geriatric millennial, my generation was the first one that demonstrated buying behaviors that were remarkably different from what had been Mm -hmm. seen in the past. And that just sort of stuck. And so there seems to be this tendency almost to the point of kind of laziness of just referring to young people as whatever the newest generation is, right? So now it's Gen Z. Or a lot of people still refer to them as millennials. Which is wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. We have kids. I am an old lady, okay? <laughs> like, like compared to like at this point, like millennials are just consumers. Yeah. You know, and a lot of advertising and marketing, it's funny when you watch commercials now and listen to to ads and and see things and in, in pop culture, I can tell that my age group is the age group that's being targeted because we are solidly middle-aged now. We actually have a decent amount of income to spend. We have children. And so referring to someone like me as if I'm a unicorn in the forest, you know, with rainbow wings that you have to understand and, and create like, that's not, that's not, we got to let that go. We got, so if you are still referring to the kids these days as millennials, you're incorrect and you need to update that playbook. Um, but for folks who are paying attention a little bit more, there's a lot around Gen Z. We had a session about Gen Z at our own summer camp over the summer. And this particular article was about Generation Alpha, which is really where my son, who's 10, he's kind of in that age range. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the ones who are right behind Gen Z. They're kind of coming up. And what I thought was really interesting about this article when I read it is that the quote unquote consumer behaviors that exist with Gen Z are not really different from what's happening with Generation Alpha. And so I think that's important because anytime we get into sweeping generalizations with marketing, I push back on that a little bit. It's mm-hmm. I really believe it's important to factor some of that in, but at the end of the day, your marketing and engagement strategies should be informed by your specific target customer. And that's where things like persona development become really important, but you also want to make sure that that is really data informed and grounded in research and information about the people who are already engaging with your institution. Because again, you don't want to overgeneralize. There's like that meme that's floated around on LinkedIn where they've got like, I think it's Prince Charles and Uh, Ozzy. Ozzy. Yeah. Ozzy and Ozzy Osbourne are technically part of the same generation, Mm -hmm. radically different people. And you would (laughs) not try to engage them in the same ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that level of granularity is important. And so as you think about marketing to young people, which, you know, both of us serve segments which where that is happening, right? Mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't get too hung up on the generational piece because right now, in general, all of them are looking for authenticity. All of them are looking for personalization to a higher degree than even the millennials. They want what I call in quotes, Instagrammable experiences, because, you know, that's what they're seeing. That's what they're growing up with. That's what is really interesting to them. They're not quite as they're, they're materialistic in some ways, but they also tend to lean more toward having really incredible experiences and they want to align with brands that are committed to making the world better. You know, they're really big on social justice and environmental responsibility. And so, again, I think just be careful with generational umbrella terms with mm-hmm. marketing. Know where one generation ends and one begins, if that's something that you're really going to lean into having that focus on who the personas are for the different age groups that you serve, for the different constituents that you serve, instead of getting super hung up on generations is definitely a better way to go. Mm-hmm. But it, it is important to understand the difference between what grandparents are looking for versus parents versus students, because we are seeing that younger students are getting involved in the decision-making process when they're choosing schools So you do want to know what resonates with them and what's important to them. But it's also important not to treat them as a monolith either. Cannot just say, everyone, you are this, you fit this persona. You fit because that's really all the generations are, they're personas. Yes. Yeah. You fit this, they're very broad ones, but you fit this, so you are going to have these behaviors. Right. Well, they they might, and they might have some of them. It's, it's like when doctors diagnose any kind of illness too, right? That right, there's, there's right. all these symptoms that you may have just because yep. you have something doesn't mean you're going to have all of them. Yep. Yeah. Just want to touch on a few things from the, the annual enrollment survey, hit on some of these things of how students are actually making that decision and kind of see where we fall out at the very end of their cycle. The biggest one as someone who loves data, it really anxiety inducing to see what this is doing to people's <laughs> uh, modeling and forecasting because that affects budgets. Affects yeah. Yeah. Planning. But we have this this fat funnel, this clogged funnel where we have more inquiries than we have in past years. We're having this inflation of apps and admits in the middle. So if you can picture this funnel, it's getting bigger and bigger. But we actually have fewer applicants. So that means fewer actual enrollments. So then it drops back down. So you may look at your numbers and say, hey, we are 10% ahead on apps. We're going to have a great year. We need to plan ahead for more housing. We need to plan ahead for more faculty. We need to do all these things. But, you know, pre-pandemic, we had a, a median of four applications per student. This year, the median was seven. Wow. Yeah you're just seeing more and more students applying to 10, 15 colleges. They're casting a wide net because yeah. they don't know what can they afford? Where can they actually get accepted? Where can they do? Yep. Yep. There's that anxiety still about all these things. And there's not enough information up front to make an informed decision on the front end. So they cast a wide net. You get these students applying to 15 colleges that they might actually be interested in five of them. And you think, Oh great. We have all these, all these applications. Okay, but then what's happening on the yield side? Mm. Are you building that affinity? Are you getting to know them? Are you focusing on the students who are actually interested so that you can help improve that yield? Are they having great experiences all throughout so they know what to expect and they're excited to go on campus? And it's not just you tell them what step to take next. Yeah. You know, because if it's you have your inquiries and you tell them to apply, once they apply, you need to complete. Once they're admitted, you need to visit. Once they've done those things, you need to deposit. They're taking the steps, but they might, might not have that excitement and they might not have that affinity. And I've talked about stickiness in the past. And I think I go back to my chemistry roots here and talk about chelation, where mm-hmm. compounds have all these different points or fingers that can wrap around something and everyone's missing the visuals here. But <laughs> the more stickiness, the more chelation points you have, the stronger that bond's going to be. Mm. You know, if they're connected to some faculty and some current students and they're really coming for the academic program, but they also love the extracurriculars and they have connections there. And, you know, if they want to be involved in band or the football team or lacrosse team or rowing team, they have all these things. <laughs> they have all these sticky points. 
that they're excited about and they can talk about. And so if there's turnover somewhere, as there tends to be, what's that going to do? Well, if they have all these other points that they still have that affinity and they still have that connection, you're less likely to lose them then. So that can really help improve that clog in the funnel. Right. Until we have more upfront information where students are applying to where they're actually interested in. And they could say either through a direct admissions program or or they know upfront that I'm going to be able to afford this and I'm excited about it. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to have to cast that wide nest. You can't fault them for that. Yeah. Everyone likes to say that they're affordable, but when you see a sticker price of 50,000 a year, Mm-hmm. What does affordable look like? Affordable right. for someone in the DC area may be very different, depending on which side of the river you're on. Mm-hmm. Right? Someone from Indiana is going to have a very different sense of affordability yes. <laughs> than than someone living in in Beverly Hills. Right? <laughs> yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah. you know, I mean, it, it's yep. it's it's very relative. Mm-hmm. It's very relative. Mm-hmm. And that's something you have to be really aware of. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you have to focus on building the affinity, building the sticky points mm-hmm. because you know that your funnel is inflated Yeah. and you can't, you can't ignore that. The other, other piece here, the idea of influencers and not just the people paid to have ads on Instagram and TikTok, but <laughs> right. the, who is actually influencing the students and influencing their decisions? Who do they turn to? Where do they go? And are they, you know, are they going to be advocates for them? Are they resources that they can turn to? Advocates being a much more active role there. The one that has really been flying up the results, I think it's often overlooked, would be online reviews. Mm. That is now the third most influential resource for them. It's not an advocate, but it's a resource they can turn to. Yeah. You know, it's one of the primary influencers of their enrollment decision. Right now it's family, current students at college, and then right below that is online reviews. Yeah. Uh, it passed their friends in terms of influence. I mean, we we turn to online reviews for everything. Where am I going to eat? Should I buy this car? Should I buy that refrigerator? We turn to online reviews for everything, so why not the college experience as well? Why yeah. not the independent school experience? Why not, you know, we're looking to move. What do people say about this school district? I actually, in that, just to, to drive that point home, because this even surprised me. I was sitting with my son, um, and we were, he's, he's obsessed with beaded bracelets right now. He loves beaded bracelets, and to the point where he's almost wearing too many of them. So we have to have a conversation <laughs> every morning where I'm like, okay, appreciate what you're doing, but how many bracelets are we wearing today? And he, he lost a couple. So we're sitting with my laptop and we're, we're scrolling through this website with bracelets and he sees one that he likes and then he sees one below it and he says, well, I like that one, but it only has three stars and the one below mm. it has five. And I was like, he's 10. So my fourth grader (laughs) is making decisions or being influenced based on without reading anything, just the visual of the number of stars that were filled in. And so I think that's important because we're seeing that with our parent survey too on the K-12 side where reviews have become more influential year over year, Mm -hmm. both with students and parents, you know, and yes, we're asking parents to report about student involvement anecdotally because we're not surveying 11, 12 and 13 year old children. I just thought it was so interesting to see that in my own personal life, because this is that we've never talked to him about this. You know, it's not a conversation that we've had, but it's been interesting somewhere along the way. He learned that those stars mean something. Yep. He's picked it up. I think there's always the context then if you have to go in and read them, you know, if someone mm-hmm. gives it a one star review and it's because they couldn't figure out how to open the box. Right. You need that context. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the influencers are overlooked, but online reviews, especially because I, I talk about the influence, the influencers campaigns. Mm-hmm. So talking to the counselors, the parents, yeah, you know, the using current students, using alumni. But while it's not an advocate, online reviews are a resource. They're there mm-hmm. 
and can be extremely useful. You can use them. I used them in digital marketing campaigns back in the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, putting in what people said about the program, yeah. putting in ratings about it really helped. Yeah. So, last bit here. I know we've been teasing AI for a while, but, <laughs> you know, I think maybe, maybe email is harder than we think. Maybe because it can be so easily segmented and yet it's often not. Mm, yeah. Like we, we see this where a student will give what extracurriculars they're interested in, what major they're interested in. But then when I did the junior secret shopping, right, almost nobody used that information. Yeah. Well, why not? It is In the enrollment survey of students who said that they had received relevant outreach, we asked how it made them feel. And 88% said it made them feel more valued. Yeah. Not it was really helpful. It was all this. It made them feel more valued. If you think about if I make you feel valued, what does that say? That's a very strong emotion. That's a very strong statement. And yet only 36% of students said they received something relevant. And this is the end of the cycle. These are students who are enrolling in college and they're not receiving relevant information from a college. That's a major issue. We have all this information from the inquiry, from the application, and yet we're still just sending out generic information. Yeah. And when we ask students to describe the emails, describe all that, too often one of the one of the most frequent, so when I do the analysis of the text, one of the most frequent descriptions was spam. Mm. Because it's all focused on what the college wants, you know, yep. fill out the application, come for a visit, instead of addressing the student, addressing what they want, what they need. And there was an interesting thing when I was hammering this point home in the in the webinar where someone said, well, even if it's spam, it still works because it is one of the things they say is most influential as well. Well, I think I think we're there's a bit of confusion there because they didn't say the bad emails they received worked. Right. You know, yes, it may help with some awareness to see that name in the inbox, but it needs to be relevant. It needs to be something that tells them something that helps them, that supports them. Uh, you know, bad emails don't work. Right. Emails do work, but bad emails don't work. Yeah. Are you ready to talk about AI? I'm always ready to talk about it. <laughs> We're a little ways in here, but uh, so let, let's go through here. I mean, AI is interesting to me. It's, it's really something that it's trained on all these large models of text. Mm-hmm. It's taking all this information and essentially just calculating, given the, the preceding words, what's the most likely next word. Mm-hmm. It's giving you back really what you expect and what you want. It's not necessarily there to innovate, give you something new, yeah. not there to subvert your expectations. And really that's the problem with all algorithms. If you've ever gone shopping for something online, uh, you know, I know that I know not many people have done that, but if you've gone shopping <laughs> for something online, how often do you then see that same product or similar product suggested to you? Yeah. It's not giving you something new that might solve a problem. It's saying you like this, you'd probably like it again. You yeah. see it on Instagram. You see it on TikTok. You like this thing once. Okay, let's keep giving you the same thing rather than saying, well, let's give you something new. Let's give you something fresh. Let's give you something interesting. We're just going to keep serving up the same thing over and over. And that's that's a barrier. That's a limit of it. And so to to showcase some of these idea of, well, we're just going to give you the, the most likely next word, <laughs> I decided to try out two different AIs. Uh, so I used chat GPT and Google Spard. And I gave it the prompt, same prompt for both of them, brainstorm a fun, and I really want to emphasize when you start hearing a, a fun and creative presentation title for a talk about using AI and enrollment marketing. And I was really looking forward to this. Okay, let's see some creativity. Let's see some fun. And I think this helps showcase some of the, the limitations. So I'll give you the five best from each. Both gave me a lot of options. These are the five best, the most fun and creative from Bard. AI and enrollment marketing. The future is now. AI, the secret ingredient to enrollment success. And you'll see there's there's basically a formula in these. Oh, for sure. Yeah. AI, your new best friend in enrollment marketing. Oh, AI, boy. the enrollment marketer's Swiss Army knife. And then the last one from, from Bard. And I think this is the one that I think everyone would come out to see. AI, <laughs> the enrollment marketer's secret AI. And that was just gibberish. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I swear, if you if you take out the word AI, 
uh, or the acronym AI. I feel like I've been to or seen these sessions before. <laughs> Your new <laughs> best friend in enrollment marketing, the enrollment marketer, Swiss Army Knife. You could plug yeah. anything in there and give a talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chat GPT did slightly better. So let's let's see if you would go to any of these sessions. Navigating the admissions highway with AI as your GPS. Enrollment alchemy, transforming prospects with AI magic. <laughs> a- which alchemy is not magic, but that's a whole <laughs> separate thing. AI unplugged, a journey into enrollment marketing, which is, is software. How do you unplug it? But yeah. AI and enrollment, a love story of data and creativity. That's something. See? Enrollment renaissance, AI's influence on marketing. Nope. <laughs> but again, it's predicting it's predicting what words come next. And so the fun part may be missing from a lot of these. There's a little bit of creativity when we get into chat GPTs, but still they feel like sessions I've seen with different buzzwords plugged in. Yeah. And so I decided to pick one of these. I said, okay, they didn't do great with the fun part. So I, I picked one of these sessions. I said, give me a joke to tell to start this off. So my prompt was, what joke should I tell to start a talk titled Navigating the Admissions Highway with AI as your GPS? I thought that's one. Okay, they can do something with travel, with roads, with GPS. So ChatGPT gave me, why did the AI apply for admissions to the university? To get a higher IQ. And with AI as your GPS, we'll navigate you through this education journey together. That makes no sense. Um, <laughs> well, didn't, nice you know, <laughs> didn't you know that going to university automatically raises your IQ? <laughs> I hadn't heard that. I, oh, I wasn't oh. aware. So I think there's a fundamental thing. misunderstanding of several things there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then Bards, I think their, their joke, I don't know if it would get awkward chuckles or people walking out, but. What do you call an AI system that can help you get into college? A GPS. Uh, yeah. Um, nope. <laughs> nope again. Yeah. Big nope. So that's the limitations. While it can help with some brainstorming, and yeah. I've used it before to say, hey, given this paragraph of text, what would be a good H2? What would yeah. Be? And it could be okay at that and give you some options. And you can iterate off of that. Since it's only giving you what you expect and want, you're not going to get a lot of anything new. You're not solving a problem. And I think this is where we've all seen when you search for a topic or you search for, you have a problem and you want to look something up and you get these just super long articles that are all such generic drivel. They're not, they're not solving the problem. Yeah. They're just taking what already exists and stuffing it all into one page that can rank well. Yeah. It's a different take. So what's, what have you been learning about AI? I've been playing, I've been testing, but so so many things. Will so I I, I will start by saying, and this is actually before. It, it's amazing. We can never make these less than an hour because there's no. so much to unpack. But I'm going to try to work <laughs> quickly. I at a high level before I get into my AI specific learning from the last quarter. So I I've mentioned before that this is something I've been experimenting with now since the summer. I'm actually doing a presentation on it for the small school leaders conference in February. So small school people stay stay tuned for that because I do see particularly for small teams where AI has the potential to be extremely helpful, but with lots of disclaimers. So here we go. For one, I have noticed a trend where people are talking about chat GPT as if it is synonymous with AI in the same way that people talk about Google's being synonymous with search. And I want to be careful with that because for one, artificial intelligence is not new. There are a lot of various forms of AI. Mm -hmm. Generative AI is the specific form that gained a lot of steam in November with ChatGPT's release. And that is what has dominated the conversation around AI since then. But 
people have been using AI in different forms for many years. And what we are seeing now is actually the result of decades of innovations in other forms of tech. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that if we're taking generative AI specifically with ChatGPT, the other thing that I think is important to mention, and it actually connects with the example that I'm going to use from my Q3 learning, is that the difference between outputs with ChatGPT in its free version, 3.5, I think is where we are right now in October of 2023, ChatGPT4 is its monthly paid version, and it's also now released an enterprise version of ChatGPT that's available to large businesses. ChatGPT 3.5 is not connected to the internet. It is Mm -hmm. driven by those large volumes of text that you mentioned before. That has a really big impact on its input or output. (laughs) It's a large impact on its output. And it's also a lighter version of what you get with ChatGPT 4. And so I think that's important as we think about what we're actually getting from these different tools. BARD is kind of known to be very much a word in pro- work in progress mm-hmm. um, on the list of, of all of the generative AI options that are available on the market. So that's something to be aware of as well. Um, and so with all of that being said, and just mentioning two of the many, I, I would encourage people to kind of go out there and see what that longer list looks like and do some experimentation. Um, you know, chat GPT is definitely one that has a low barrier of entry when it comes to just jumping on, setting up a quick account and experimenting. So I would definitely encourage you to maybe start there. But I have found at a high level with free versions that they can be most helpful with things like brainstorming, um, shorter amounts of text. You know, Mm -hmm. if I need an email subject line or a webinar title or something short and snappy that I just need a few more ideas for, it can be helpful for that. Um, With some of the more robust versions, you can get into things like summarizing long form content, even if it's a blog post that you don't want to read because it's too long or an ebook and you just want the highlights, it can mm-hmm. give that to you, which is cool. Um, Chat GPT's code interpreter, which they are calling something else now, but I remember it as code interpreter. <laughs> and if you Google that, um, you will find what I'm talking about, but it has been known to be very helpful for some level of data analysis and, and working with data in a more robust way. Um, So there are some good use cases there. The learning that I took away from um, this quarter actually came from the Enrollment Marketing Association conference in Las Vegas in September. There was a session on AI in admissions that I really thought was super valuable, even though it was different from what people expected. So the expectation based because there wasn't a description in the app for the conference was that it would be more about the application of AI, generative AI specifically, in the admissions process, admissions offices, how you might be able to use it in your work. What it actually was, was about creating policy. And I think you actually should start there before mm-hmm. you start thinking about how you're using it in your in your work. And so I I thought it was really interesting because it wasn't just about, you know, here's what you do or what some of the potential pitfalls are. It also dug into here's what this actually looks like in practice. And so we started with this discussion of how prospective students can use AI in the application process, particularly when it comes to essays. And this is something that I think is really important. And if you as an institution are not thinking about this, whether you're in K-12 or higher ed, I was actually surprised mm-hmm. that this wasn't a bigger topic at NACAC. Um, and it's possible that maybe there was a session about this that I just missed. But 
given the role of the admission essays in college applications, I was very surprised that somebody wasn't ringing the alarm about this because it's a big deal. Um, Mm. And it wasn't until I saw a live demo of how an eighth grader could use different prompts to write an admission essay for ninth grade using chat GPT-4. So that's an important distinction that wasn't made in the session. I think we would have seen a very different set of outputs with chat GPT 3.5, but this was the paid version. The results gave me chills. I mean, I, I truly, and they used a set of different prompts, one that were what set that was more generic, one that was more specific, that spoke more to what this eighth grader was interested in. And and a little bit more about who this person was to make it truly sound like, you know, John Smith, the eighth grader, wrote an essay. And I got to tell you, it was scary. There were audible gasps in the audience. because, And these were coming from people who were reviewing essays and files on an ongoing basis and have been doing so for years. So if those people were gasping... <laughs> That means that we, we were, what we were seeing was pretty darn good. And so it wasn't necessarily to scare people, but it was to say, you know, we're in the throes of admission season. Events are starting to ramp up. If you have not created and articulated your policy around how these tools can or cannot be used in your admissions process, you need to do that as soon as you get back to your desk. because. Mm-hmm. Students could be using these tools, and we know that they already are, and you might not know it. I I think there is a perception, and I I heard a little bit of this at NACAC, that, well, it takes a lot of work and a lot of prompting to create anything good, and students aren't going to put forth the effort to do that. Yes, they will. (laughs) Yes, they will. And, you know, for someone who's applying to an independent school, spending $20 a month on ChatGP4 is not a big lift, right? That's not a big ask. And so I really think it's important that schools are thinking about this. And, you know, it's not not even to say we're just going to shut it down and we don't want anything to do with this. I actually don't think that that's the right approach. I think there's an opportunity to use this as a learning moment for the adults and the kids in the room. Um, But there are a couple of ways that you can approach this. And they talked about that in the session. One is to say, absolutely not. We don't want generative AI to be used in any form. And if you go that route, you have to be prepared to police it. And Mm -hmm. that's probably going to happen in ways that create more work for your team. You know, you're probably going to have to switch to in-person essay writing where you give a student a prompt and they sit in a room with someone and they have to write that essay. Um, or you may have to do, you know, proctored essays, you know, things like that, where it is a true one-on-one experience and you are watching this child write, um, which you can do, but, uh, you know, that's, that's <laughs> there. there's a cost to that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's something that you really have to think about. And again, you have to make sure that you're very clear in your admissions web, you know, the process that you outline on your website, you're repeating that and reinforcing it, reinforcing it as families are going through the process. Or you could say, you know what, we're going to allow it, but in these specific ways. And so um, one of the ways that was mentioned that I thought was interesting, and they also did a demo of this, was to say, you can't use generative AI to write your essay, but if you want to use it to provide you guidance on how to write an essay, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so another scenario that they demoed was to say, show me how I should write an essay that fits these criteria. And that was actually really great too. There was actually um, someone in the audience who had a background as a counselor. And he said, when I was telling kids how to do this, this is exactly, these words might as well have come from me because this is exactly how I would tell a student at at this age to write an essay. Mm -hmm. And so there's an opportunity for it to become instructional as opposed to doing the work for you. 
Another point that was made is that this could also actually serve as an equalizer for students who may be coming from a lot of different, like eighth grade looks different in a lot of different environments. And some Mm -hmm. students may have had a lot of progress, a lot of work and, and done a lot of process development and how to write an essay. And some may have not. And so if you're allowing them to use tools in this way, in some ways that can serve as a, as a manner of leveling the playing field. And so it was a really interesting discussion, but I have become a really big advocate for having policies in place mm-hmm. for what role AI is going to play in the classroom, what role it's going to play in the admissions process, if you're an institution that has one, and what role it's going to play for you at the institutional level. You know, if you're in the communications office, how are you using it in the communications office? I think we all remember there was an example from, I can't remember which one, but a fairly prominent university at the end of last year where they used AI to write a letter in response to to a campus incident. And that's that's not what you wanted. I would not nope. recommend that. You know, it was not great. <laughs> it was not, and it wasn't great. It was very clear because, mm-hmm. you know, this was AI six months ago or however many months ago. And I think that's the other important consideration too. There's a podcast that I've become a huge fan of, the Marketing AI podcast by the Marketing AI Institute. And one of the things they keep saying is that generative AI, as we are using it right now, is the least sophisticated it's ever going to be. It is only going to become smarter, only going to become more capable. And so ignoring it is not an option. Saying no across the board is not an option. It's really important to educate the grownups and get the grownups on the same page and make sure that you have those policies and that you have people who are consistently monitoring how this technology is developing it so that you can use those powers for good and help your students do it too. Mm-hmm. And I was just listening to, I believe it was Freakonomics to a series uh, on AI. And so ChatGPT4 is about the equivalent looking at the number of connections and mm-hmm. amount of data and, and the processing power, it's about the equivalent of a, uh, of a squirrel's brain right now. Yeah. And so you have to think about, okay, there's things that squirrels can do very well. Mm-hmm. Like they can track store, you know, communicate to each other. Do I want right. a squirrel doing more complicated tasks? Probably not, but we're, no. we're within, <laughs> <laughs> we're within 10 years or so of, having the processing power of of a human brain so we need to get the policies in place now so as it gets more and more when we get to dog level we get to you know all these (laughs) uh you have to think about okay so what is ethical not just what can it do how should it be used but was ethical use for it you know should we have it making admissions decisions should we yeah, be able to no, say, well, boy. given this data set, who would be admitted, who would not? Yeah. At some point, some company out there, I'm sure, will advocate for it. Yeah. But is it the right thing to do? Should it, Just because we can do something, does that mean we should? Having the process in place for, okay, if, if we had an article for the alumni newsletter that we used AI to write, who's the byline? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we cite it? Was it do we say that it was written by Will Patch or do we say it was written by Will Patch with help from AI? Do we say it was written by AI yeah. and edited by Will Patch? What's yeah. what's our policy? Yeah. Then what do you tell students? You know, if you're going to have it help you write code for a class or help you write an essay or help you brainstorm for this or help you analyze data, does it get cited? Yeah. Those are all the things that you got to talk about. Yes. Figure and, out. And be prepared for it to evolve. Yes. Say, this is our policy today. It may change tomorrow. Here's how we're going to keep the, the community updated. Here's how we're going to keep you all abreast of what's going on because mm-hmm. we know it's going to keep changing day by mm-hmm. day. They could come out with chat GPT-5. They come, maybe Bard will take a huge, huge leap forward. Maybe another player will come in. Yeah. Uh, we know every company out there is going to want to have theirs be the tool. Amazon will have a big one. Um, I cannot remember right now the name of of Microsoft's, but 
yeah. um, maybe theirs will take a huge leap forward. I mean, will it integrate then with LinkedIn so that recruiters can then use it to find and message people even more egregiously? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to have the policies in place for all this. You have to think through today, how is it used? How do we cite it? How should we use it? How can we use it? And that all starts with playing with it, testing it. Yeah. I mean, I, my examples were silly, I know, but that's that's kind of the point of mm-hmm. here's what it can do today. It's not that impressive in that use case. So let's say right now, let's use it for iterating examples for some A, B or factorial tests. Mm-hmm. Let's use it for brainstorming. Let's use it for creating outlines for summarizing. You know, we wrote these 10 pages of text. Can you give me some bullets I can use then for an email? Exactly. Exactly. But don't have it write jokes for you. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not today. (laughs) Well, this was a great chat. I I have a feeling we will talk about AI again in the coming months as things continue to evolve. But I want to take that deep, deep dive here today, too. Love it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Angela. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, We were both at NACAC, and it was great seeing so many faces out there Mm -hmm. as we continue going to the conferences and and seeing you in person. Come up, say hi. Tell us what you think. Yes, please do. We'd love to see you. Well, Angela and everyone else, have a good one. Thanks for joining. Be well. Thanks, Will.